Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, we're a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. We are currently in our summer programming period, and today I'm going to bring you a show, um, a replayed show. This is a show featuring um, Delan, who's been a regular guest on the show, as well as Harley, who is a host of Freedom of Species at the time of this show, and they discuss their trip to Palestine and the work of the Palestinian Animal League. They also discuss the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land and how this influences and impacts animal activism. This show originally aired on the 31st of March in 2019, but it's really relevant to what's going on right now in Palestine and understanding that broader context of what's gone on historically um, and what life has been like in Palestine for a long time. Um, and of course, given the nature of our show, also uh, relationships with animals and how that political context influences the animal activism that goes on within Palestine. Just a quick heads up about our summer programming schedule. So last week we brought you a summer special on the politics of ice hockey um, and next week we're airing a show um, is going to be a Freedom of Species replay of the Stray documentary discussion and then our final summer show within our summer program period will be another summer special and that will be on anti-capitalist alternatives. There'll be a live show in the studio and then we'll be back to regular Freedom of Species programming on the 21st of January. Wishing everyone a nice summer break. So this week we are joined by Dylan Fernando, who's going to be discussing animal activism in Palestine. Welcome to the show, Dylan. Thanks for having me, Nick. And also we have Harley McDonald Eckersall, is that correct? Yeah, yep. Yeah, new member to the team who's also um, travelled to Palestine as well, um, who, yeah, we're going to uh, join in that discussion as well. So maybe just start things off. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite a, it's probably not the first thing a lot of animal activists would think of. Like, I'm going to go to Palestine. Like, how did this come about, your trip there? Yeah, so it sort of my interest in Palestine started with... Uh, an academic I met at a, at a at one of the critical animal studies conferences I was at a couple of years ago, Esther Alun, and she'd been doing a whole lot of research into animal activism in Palestine and sort of how they're how they're interacting or more importantly not interacting with um, animal activists in Israel. And so it seemed like a really interesting situation. And given the fact that we're in a kind of environment where where sort of getting this message out from Israel that it's this sort of vegan paradise. I thought it's a really interesting situation. And so 
luckily enough, um, Esther happened to um, post about a, a tour that she had done. And so these tours happened to be happening again, and they were run in coordination with the Palestinian Animal League, and they were political tours of Palestine. And there were eight-day tours, and it just sounded really fascinating. So I talked to Harley about it, and we just had to jump on it. Well, actually, what actually happened there was that Delan tagged me and said, I'm probably not going to go, but you should go <laughs> and tell me all about it. So then after much convincing, I convinced him to come along with me. Fair call so, out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very fair So call Dylan out. was keen for a second-hand account, but ended up yeah. with a first-hand account, I guess. And yeah, um, yeah Esther Allowne's work is really great. And we'll probably give this a plug at, at the end, but um, you can hear her talk and activism in Palestine, Israel, on our website as well as on iTunes. So definitely check that out. Um, I think her work is really very critical, very nuanced about what's going on there and the different intersections between political issues and animal issues etc um but yeah you mentioned palestine animal league so maybe talk a bit about which groups you're involved with how long you were there etc yeah so um the tour we were there overall for two weeks the tour we were on was eight days so during those eight days so the tours were coordinated by the palestinian animal league and i think the fact that the tours in their actuality focused a lot on the history of Palestine and the history of Israeli occupation. I think that says a lot about how connected the Palestinian Animal League is to human liberation. So the goal of the Palestinian Animal League is to kind of combine animal rights, human rights and land rights in this really multifaceted approach to dealing with liberation in Palestine. So they coordinated these tours but what we actually did, we spent one day in Ramallah, which is where this is the economic capital of Palestine, and that's where PAL is based. But apart from that one day, which we spent like, kind of learning a little bit about PAL's work, most of the time we were traveling around to different um, Palestinian territories or occupied territories and just learning about the occupation, learning about what it's like to live in Palestine as um and being treated like under the apartheid, the Israeli apartheid system. So it was really focused on, yeah, what it's like to be there, what those people are facing, and how, and the history of that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely worth stating that political occupation, stating that context, and we could do a whole show on that, and maybe we will do that <laughs> elsewhere, actually. But uh, for today, we'll cover it fairly briefly. But yeah. I think it's important to mention that to give a context in which animal activism, veganism, and et cetera, is kind of taking place within. So you mentioned things like apartheid, and I know, um, yeah, activists from South Africa have actually made that comparison and not only said that it's similar, but it's actually worse in some ways as well. But do you want to elaborate a bit on that about the, yeah, the oppression and the occupation that Palestinian people face? Yeah, look, just before we jump into that, I want to just quickly address sort of the myths that we have around Palestine. So some of the most common stories, which I kind of heard growing up around Palestine, in which I think Harley would um, Mm. agree with that as well, is that we kind of had this idea that, oh, it's a really super complex situation. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's a religious conflict um, and nobody's really right. There's no solution and it's never going to stop. Um, the actuality of the matter is this conflict has only been going on for just over 100 years or so. It's very much a political conflict rather than a religious one. And the the facts are that it's really not 
as complex as people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. So essentially what's going on in Israel, sorry, in Palestine is a modern day colonial project. So you have a situation where there's a project by the state of Israel to essentially take over the land of Palestine. And from essentially the early 1900s, this has been happening through migration, through the development of militant militias, um, by arming Israeli the Israeli population, um, and then eventually claiming the land for themselves through a process of ethnic cleansing. Mm. And that process is continuing today. You have a situation where Palestinians are um, essentially treated as second-class citizens through a really intricate but very systematic uh, set, like, legal system. Mm. So there are several sets of laws that apply to Palestinians that don't apply to Israelis, and Palestinians are treated under military law. Yeah, and not only that, there's not only one system that applies to Palestinians that doesn't apply to Israeli. It's not that they're oppressed in one way. There's four different ways. So there's four different ways that apply to Palestinians in different parts of Palestine. So there's one that applies to Palestinians from um, Jerusalem, which people call them Palestinians from 48, because 48 is when Jerusalem was first occupied during the Nakba. So there's one that applies to Palestinians from the West Bank, one that applies from Palestinians from Gaza, and one that applies to Palestinians from... Um, I think they're just refugees in general, yeah. so people who have been um, displaced from their homes. So there's, a re- like Dylan said, it's a really complex system of oppression. So I think that's really important to clarify because when we're talking about animal rights, when we're talking about their veganism, this is all happening in this context of occupation and displacement. Yeah, and just touching on what the what the those laws look like in everyday life, it looks like checkpoints everywhere. Even within Palestinian territory, Palestinians are subject to really kind of harsh uh, checkpoint systems. It looks like Israelis Israeli soldiers killing Palestinians um, and then planting knives on them to make the Palestinian look like the aggressor. It looks like um, the state of Israel appropriating Palestine's water reserves, taking that for Israeli citizens, and then only giving a small portion of that back to Palestinians. Selling it back. Selling it back back. at high prices. Mm -hmm. And to to make sure they have enough water, all Palestinian households have to make sure they store it in a water tank. So even that that one thing is just a constant everyday stress Mm. that's going to work away at you. Yeah, so a really easy way to tell a Palestinian home from an Israeli settler's home is you look on top of the building to see if they have a water tank. Mm. If they don't, it's a settlement, a settler's home, and if they do, then it's a Palestinian home. Mm. Wow, yeah. Mm. And I think that that idea of, like, it's so complex and you don't know what's going on, it's sort of a tool of the Israeli state to go, you don't know enough, therefore don't comment or don't take a side. And it's like, yeah, I could probably know more about exactly who the president of Israel was in 1974 Mm. whatever, but I've seen the maps, I've seen the loss of land, I've seen, you know, the different laws, as you say, for Palestinians as opposed to Jewish Israeli settlers, Mm. etc. So, yeah, and I think um, maybe we'll do this at the end, but you can also give anything now. But a documentary I saw, which is very old now, but it still does give that context, was a John Pilger documentary. Documentary. It's mm. called Palestine is still the issue, and yeah, it was talking about a lot of those ongoing oppression. Um, yeah, Palestinian people face in terms of yeah examples of women having to give birth at checkpoints and not being allowed through, and just yeah, mm. really systemic oppression they live under. Are there any resources, or we can share at the end if you'd rather? But 
Um, I can't think off the top of my head. I know mm. groups that are working mm. in resistance, and I think they're definitely important to share. So we did some tours with um, Grassroots J- Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which are a really amazing group who are working like, within Palestinian, Palestinian resistance, and they're work. They're one of the only groups working on like a long term strategic plan. So mm. a lot at the moment, at least, a lot of the resistance is quite short term as people have been just oppressed for so long that it's quite hard to think long term so this group grassroots jerusalem has really focused on building a long-term plan and a vision of the future that sees um achievable liberation of palestinian people so i think i know some groups i definitely have a think uh, as we go through yeah. about some more resources that people can do to get some more education yep yeah we'll definitely give um but in terms of um moving do you think we've said enough about the thing like if there's yeah, anything else yeah. you want to say about the comp- context where we, again i know we could do a whole mm. hour on this but <laughs> yeah. is there anything you'd particularly yeah. like to get out before we move on talking about veganism and animal activism there i think it's sort of i think we've painted a decent picture um i think one thing that we've probably not touched on is the fact that a lot of this is about land mm. and that a big part of um, what's going on is in Palestine is all about seizing land, um, and that looks like you know demolishing Palestinian houses. It looks like building separation walls to seize land in really kind of uh, Machiavellian ways, almost. Um, and I think just yeah, looking at the sort of political context that we've laid out, it's an interesting way to say the least. It's an interesting place to say the least in which to talk about animal rights. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Yes. So we'll, we'll move on to talking about veganism now, but obviously that political context would definitely be underlying a lot of the discussions we have and probably sometimes quite explicit as well. But I guess we can't talk about animal <laughs> activism, veganism without, like, every, you know, animal activism, veganism occurs in a certain political context. I think sometimes we can forget that or leave that out when we're talking about animal activism. But um, what we're going to do now is we're going to play actually a little bit of a podcast episode. So we've been playing quite a few. We've been playing, like, stand-up comedy and little clips and stuff. So I thought I'd keep going with that so this is actually from a podcast called the infinite monkey cage which is a science and comedy podcast and on the episode future of the universe the rise of veganism come has come up and it is something we've been commenting on the show quite a lot lately of this idea of like veganism being everywhere and we're going to talk about this in in the context of israel which um dylan has already mentioned so yeah we're just going to play a little bit of this uh, infinite monkey cage episode talking about veganism last year this time last year there were five vegans in the uk now <laughs> Mm-hmm. McDonald's, I think, has a vegan menu. There's like 600,000 of them out of nowhere, like they were in a cupboard going boo. And suddenly, something, something in that idea, something in the idea of health and in the idea that this climate is attached to that notion, it's slightly problemat- more problematic than people make out, but nonetheless, that is uh, an impetus to, to take up that diet. It's gone crazy. So it's clearly possible. What is it about that specific mm. thing that has caught people's imagination? I like I'm, I'm a vegetarian. They've easily. taken the heat off us. In the old days, <laughs> if you were a vegetarian and you turned up, it's like, what can you eat then? Anything except meat. We don't have anything except meat. Now they just, oh, you're not a vegan. Thank heavens for that. We've run out of seeds. You know, it's just the... Um... Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. 
We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves and we're joined by Dylan Fernando talking about animal activism in Palestine. And, yeah, I mean, the clip there was Infinite Monkey Cage. I I quite like that podcast. If you um, want to hear more of that, you can search the Infinite Monkey Cage online or in your favourite podcast app. I did want to just briefly mention they mentioned the claims for environmental veganism. They weren't that solid. So if you want to hear more about that, um, the most recent time we've covered that in the show was uh, David Hun, uh, Melbourne Climate Save. So you can find that at Freedom of Species or on iTunes. And it's something we've covered a lot in the show before. So you can hear the stats and all that kind of stuff on the environmental impact of animal agriculture but the reason i played that clip was um there's been a lot of discussions in australian animal activism just worldwide about this sort of as dylan mentioned at the start of sort of israel being this vegan mecca etc um so yeah i'm curious about um in terms of yeah i guess that discussion about veganism in israel and was that something that uh people in palestine were kind of aware of or was, was something that came up on your tour or your time there it was certainly, it was actually sort of the reason that the tour was created because it, initially it wasn't, um, it wasn't sort of a, it didn't have so much of a focus on being an international tour. So initially it was sort of just run for, um, it was run by a Brazilian woman and just for Brazilians. And then as this sort of vegan washing campaign came out by the State of Israel, where they're presenting it as, you know, oh, the best city to be vegan, oh, you know, this is the only military uh, that you can be a part of and be vegan. Um, And so Palestinian vegans started going, well, you know, what can we do about this? And so, you know, they didn't have the funding to bring bloggers over to, to Palestine like the Israeli state did but they did have the capacity to do these tours. So they opened the tours up internationally and that sort of, uh, that, that, that is what kind of started it up. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're very aware of the fact that Israel is kind of using this narrative of a vegan paradise to make itself look really good in the international light. And this, interestingly, we found out this wasn't really the first time that Israel has tried to do this. So Israel has previously and still currently engages in a pinkwashing campaign as well, where they sort of really spruik themselves as the they spruik themselves as the only city in the Middle East where uh, the only country in the Middle East where you can be openly gay, mm. um, and they're really big about that. And you know, it's a situation where they're kind of trying to use this to to hide the fact that they are they're engaging in a massive oppressive colonial Mm. project and the interesting thing is that this kind of narrative is not only used externally it's also used internally amongst their own people so like um actually who like we talked about esther um before esther alum and she's done a really interesting like study um interviewing soldiers in the israeli army like vegan soldiers Mm. and having their kind of like talking to them about why you know being vegan they've they feel comfortable participating as a soldier in this oppression and there's this one conversation which our guide was telling us about that just we were just talking to her about this and she was telling that she heard this one conversation where this young so in israel there's compulsory military service um three years compulsory military service 
from when you turn 18. So most soldiers you see are like 18 to 21. They're very young. And there was a conversation that was had between a young um, Israeli soldier who was vegan. And in this interview, she said that her commitment to not harming any life was so strong that if she wasn't allowed to be vegan in the army, she wouldn't have refused her compulsory military service. Mm. And I think that kind of contradiction is so interesting, that these narratives are so strong that people don't even realise that, you know, by going into the army, by, you know, actively oppressing and in a lot of cases killing Palestinian people, they're not... They still feel that they're aligning with their values of veganism because they can wear vegan boots and have vegan meals. So it's a really interesting contradiction that's happening inside Israel as well as a really interesting kind of narrative that's being projected out into the world. Mm, Yeah, and it is interesting, like, I guess these bloggers who have a big platform and maybe haven't looked into the issue, it kind of almost seems like a depoliticized tour. So as Mm. I go, I get to give a talk about veganism, then I go get a tour around to get all the vegan food. It's like, if you haven't looked into the issue, like, what's the problem? I think that's a lot of the reaction. Mm. Um, But as Dilan mentioned before, like, these these, uh, tours are done by groups that are at least partially funded by the Israeli government as a way to sort of, as you say, sort of pink wash, humane wash the occupation of you know Israel just distracting the, fa- the focus from the occupation towards oh Israel is great you know, for vegan food or it's great for LGBT people etc um, sort of overlooking the fact well maybe not if you're a Palestinian queer person for example maybe not mm. so much so it's sort of over yeah sort of overlooking that and I guess this is on the part of the Israeli state to not only sort of win people over to their position generally but I think particularly more progressive minded people who might be vegan or might be queer or pro-queer or whatever mm. as kind of trying to get those people over but i guess those people who are sort of concerned about those issues as harley mentioned should also be concerned not just are the boots vegan but what what are we doing like more systemically in, in this yeah. country too yeah. uh so um and i want to unless there's anything else about veganism maybe we'll move on to palestine now mm. it, yeah yeah so we're going to palestine so what was uh vegan food like in palestine were there many vegan restaurants or yeah or, no not really vegan restaurants i yeah. don't think there's any vegan restaurants in palestine at the moment yeah. but the food is unbelievable sensational (laughs) absolutely i don't think i'm ever going to be able to eat like store-bought hummus from here again (laughs) after having it in israel sorry in palestine yeah Yeah. so it's really interesting in palestine because a lot of food is default vegan Mm. um they don't really use animal products in food partly because it's so expensive Mm. and it's seen as like a real luxury so like we were told by our guide on the first day like if they have something like you know, yogurt, mm. like cow's milk yogurt. They will eat it. They won't put it in things. Same with like an, mm. like chicken's eggs. They will eat them separate because they're so expensive. They won't put them in a cake. So most of their like sweets, most of their um, food, unless it specifically says it has an animal product in it, it's mm. usually vegan. Mm. Like um, it's usually plant-based. So mm. yeah, it was really easy to eat vegan mm. um, while we were over there. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of sort of the staple foods are, you know, inherently plant-based. So you're talking about things like your breads, your salads, Mm. um, but then you've also got things like hummus. Uh, They use, uh, you know, chickpeas are really widely used. Mm. They have a lot of eggplant dishes as well. They have falafel. um, And then there's, of course, zatar, which is a herb mix they use in a lot of different scenarios. And yeah, like Harley mentioned, they're sweets as well. So, you know, for, for example... Any any um, baklava that you eat in Palestine would 
generally be vegan. It wouldn't be made with honey. Mm. Um, but something really interesting that was something that kind of rose up more and more as we were there is that their food, like, is so important. Like, it's really important. It's a really important part of culture. But it's also, like, a product of colonization. And the way they think about food and the way they think about veganism as well is a real product of colonization. So the conversation... So what we noticed was that people have a real, like... It's kind of a culture. There's a culture of compassion, and that doesn't just extend to humans. So we saw so many street cats. There's, like, just so many street cats. It's incredible, like, how many you'll see. Like, you're just walking along the street, and there'll be cats everywhere. We did, I think we saw one cat or so who looked underfed because people feed the cats as well, and they'll let them inside if it's – and they're not, like, pets, as we call them, you know. They're mm. just cats – who live in the same neighborhood as humans and humans see them as kind of cohabitants of that neighborhood. And that's a lot of the way people think about other animals in that sense. So there's this real culture of compassion and that kind of feeds into those, a lot of like kind of tradition around even like when you eat animals, how you do that, how you kill animals. And I'm not saying that the way they kill animals is right or just or fair. I don't think there's any way to kill animal, kill, kill someone in the right way. But I think the thought behind that is most of the time it's doing this in a way that's fair and doing this in a way that's compassionate. So what I think often gets in the way of vegan, the vegan kind of conversation is not a lack of compassion or not of a lack of belief that other animals, like other species, share value with humans. More so, it's a kind of a thing around their food, which is that food is so important to them and food has also been a source of comfort and a source of kind of measuring how comfortable you are. So in Palestine, people usually only eat an animal if a guest is over because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's like if they can afford to eat an animal, they're not doing too badly. So it's kind of a, a bit of a barometer of how they are, how they're doing, how they're, how financially stable they are. So it's a symbol of wealth, but it's also a symbol of security. And that is, is often a real, like, large, like, product of colonization. So the fact they call lentils, which are a massive staple in Palestinian food, they make so many food with lentils, and they call lentils the poor man's chicken. Mm. And they'll call eggplant the poor man's meat. Mm. And that, you know, I don't think, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure that that hasn't come from decades of and thousands of years of Palestinian culture. That's come from colonization where chickens have been seen as... A staple food when like their real staples are really plant-based and that but then it's become that flesh animal flesh has been seen as a symbol of status and it's been similar seen as a symbol of wealth so mm. it's really interesting how they think about food but it's and i think what pal finds is it's often hard to have that conversation because you can't just say you should just stop eating chickens because they're like but then i'm poor if I'm not eating that symbol of wealth, then people will think that I'm poor. And they're going, you know, they're under occupation. They're living in this world where there's, there's these little symbols that mean so much. So, yeah, Dylan, would you... Oh, I think you've covered pretty much everything. Yeah. There. Oh, yeah, I wanted to jump in in mm. terms of the, um, 
yeah, in terms of like falafel and hummus and stuff, mm. I know there's been critiques of like, you know, for example, these vegan tours of like, you know, enjoy like Israeli food. And obviously mm. there is falafel and hummus in Israel, but it's not <laughs> yes. the only place and it is mm. traditionally Palestinian food as well, et cetera, as well. Yeah. Um, so there's that issue. Yeah. I mean, our guide, our guide had a really interesting conversation with um, an, is- an Israeli person and she was talking to them about, you know, she was basically saying, you know, how can you take these foods like falafel and hummus and call them Israeli when, you know, they're obviously from Palestine? Mm-hmm. And then the person, you know, the, that argument was going back and forth. But then eventually they kind of conceded and they're like, okay, well, we call them we call them Israeli because we eat them in Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see that that logic doesn't really flow because then, you know, you can say that okay, you know, we eat dal in Australia, but mm. dal clearly isn't Australian. Yeah, so you yeah. have this, yeah, you have an interesting situation where Israel mm. is very much taking what is Palestinian and trying to transform that as well, very much is erasing what Palestinian mm. food is. Mm. Yeah, and you see that particularly with um, za'atar, which is, like we mentioned, is a real big staple. It's used by itself and also in the kind of herb mix, which is also known as za'atar. And za'atar grows wild across Palestine, but under Israeli law, Palestinians are now forbidden, like, it's illegal for them to forage and collect zata. So, which is, and they say they say it's an endangered species, but if you look anywhere in the in Palestine or in Israel, zata is growing, like, free range across everywhere. the hills. And it's <laughs> everywhere. And they used to collect it. Like, that's a big part of a lot of people's kind of survival. They collected zata and they ate it and they sold it. So that's... It's just one example of how Israel kind of uses food systems to continue this process of colonization by kind of erasing Palestinian culture and disconnecting them from their land and from their ability to make like ability to thrive off their own food systems. Mm, yeah, and I think also this issue brings up another um, yeah, issue in terms of how we measure sort of success or how animal-friendly a country mm. is because Israel is is sort of marketed as a really vegan-friendly country because quite a large number of, pe- number of people identify as vegan and there's quite a lot of vegan restaurants. Mm. Um, but if you look at the animal consumption in Palestine, it's far, far lower. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, as you say, there's not many explicitly vegan restaurants and not necessarily a high proportion of people identifying as vegan but i guess in terms of like number of animals slaughtered they'd be doing much better so they could be viewed as the yeah animal friendly nation so yeah how do you think about that in terms of measuring success in terms of number of vegans Mm. yeah i think it's really inherently problematic and something that you touched on is that israel is actually like it's it's very high up there um in terms of the rate of animal consumption it's. I think they're about on par with Australia, and I know that Australia is somewhere in the top five. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's highly problematic to rate success on the number of vegans because th- that's from the perspective of a movement for animals or a movement that's standing in solidarity with animals. You're kind of forgetting the animals there because mm-hmm. the reality is that there's still a massive amount of animal lives mm-hmm. being taken in that scenario. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah. I think also it's really just hard to inherently measure something like speciesism by looking at humans. I think, like Little Dan said, and I think something that really springs to mind for me there is just the different stories that we saw in Israel and in Palestine. So we spent one day in Tel Aviv. I don't think we could have spent any more. It was awful, <laughs> and I'm, I don't think we were just biased. It was one of the worst days of my life. Um, <laughs> it's very stressful, mm. and. 
So I mentioned earlier about the street cats um, and Pal have this really interesting philosophy around street cats and dogs where they've, they've started this veterinary clinic where they treat street cats and street dogs. And there's a, there's a massive population of street cats and street dogs in Palestine. And we were talking to the founder of Pal about what he's kind of – because they're not a shelter, they mm. can't keep dogs. They treat them and then they usually either rehome them or kind of release them, but they can't really rehome any dogs or cats because they don't have the facilities and we were talking to him about like is if that's a bit of a pressure and he said that he would prefer to treat a dog and then release them back into their home which is like a community where they kind of live wild Mm. release them back into their home rather than keep them in a cage in a shelter Mm. and that was like really different to the narrative that we hear often in australia so that was something that we really thought about and then we ended up in tel aviv for one day and we were walking past this park and we saw, it would have been like 20, 30. Yeah, I think there was about, yeah, at least, at least 20. Yeah, at least 20 dogs tied up really short leases to this fence mm. on a really busy street. Like there mm. were, thousands, it was during Pride. So there were thousands of people walking past. It was loud. It was noisy. The dogs were fighting and barking. And we're really confused as to what, going on, what was going on. So we walked up to one of the people who was standing there. And we were like, why are the dogs here? And they said, oh, this is an adoption day. Mm. And we we're like, oh, and they were an animal shelter. Yeah. And that was really kind of shocking to us because it showed the different narratives where mm. Israel is this vegan paradise and they have shelters and they have adoption days and they have this kind of Western narrative of how we care for animals. Palestine is completely different, yet what we saw in contrast was this, on one hand, was this respect for animals' autonomy, was this respect for their life and their freedom and their ability to find a home and choose that home. And on the other hand, in Israel, we saw these dogs tied up to fences, used basically as like propaganda tool for people walking past to go, mm. oh, cute dogs, they'll give you some money because they were fundraising at the same time. Mm. We didn't see any dogs being adopted, but no. we saw lots of people giving like loose change into bowls they were holding it was too loud there to even have a conversation with someone let alone adopt a dog so Mm -hmm. yeah it was very much sort of a fundraising initiative and Mm -hmm. yeah it's like from what we saw palestine palestinians or the palestinian activists that we saw very much were sort of seeing animals as cohabitants of the land we live on rather than sort of the the victim narrative that that I think we tend to cling to in the West and Mm. I would suppose in Israel as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I guess like that's shown in another story we were told by the co-founder of PAL, um, which was when um, during a gas... where Israeli, like, they dropped gas? Uh, The Israeli uh, soldiers had... um, They were at the Jalazone refugee camp in Ramallah and they um, they had launched tear gas canisters into a crowd... And essentially um, what had happened was a pigeon got caught in the tear gas. and Flown into a window. Flown into a window as a result of that. And so what happened was there, there was a bunch of people who were concerned for the pigeon and so they ran back um, through the tear gas to get the pigeon. And what ended up happening was um, the ambulance staff who were there, the Palestinian ambulance staff, took the pigeon... Uh, into a separate ambulance and treated the pigeon with an o- with um, and they put a full um, oxygen mask on the pigeon just to wow. give them yeah. that oxygen back and managed to nurse them back to health. Yeah. So there were two ambulances. One they loaded the humans into. There was a ho- another whole ambulance, and they're like, "What's happened to the pigeon? What's happened to the pigeon?" They're like, "Oh, they're in the other ambulance." Mm. And they found out later that yeah, they'd been putting the oxygen mask on the pigeon. They'd been wiping their eyes, yeah. and they'd 
really is, even though there is not much of a vegan narrative, there really is this view of other species as, yeah, like cohabitants, as kind of not just victims, not just commodities, not just individuals who are less than humans in any way. Even though they do eat them, they see them a lot of the time as, yeah, other people in this struggle. Mm. So... It was, yeah, interesting to see that contrast from the, you know, vegan paradise to the what's often portrayed in at least the Israeli narrative as the, you know, barbaric animal-eating carnivores. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And I guess that's that's probably a good place to start talking a little bit about the whole narrative around savagery that is used by the State of Israel to make Palestinians look like terrorists um so a very a very big part of it of of what the israeli sort of narrative is all about is okay you know these people are primitive they're lesser than us they don't they won't show respect to us there's a big sort of narrative that palestinians want to kill all jews and that that narrative around savagery is really interesting because you see that in many other scenarios as well. You see that um, in scenarios uh, around other oppressed minorities, like with um, the, the savagery narrative was used to justify slavery. Um, it was used to justify the uh, the what happened in Australia during colonisation. And so I really don't think... What's we, still happening what's in Australia. What's still happening in Australia. Mm. Um, and I, I really don't think that we can kind of separate uh, this... What what we like to do as vegans is, as in many in sort of mainstream uh, ideologies around veganism, try to sort of look at it and say, you know, we're vegans, we're all about the animals, we don't want to be political. But this idea that there is a category of individuals if we consider them savage and if we can cast them as, like, lesser than us, then we can inflict violence, that creates the conditions for violence. Mm -hmm. And so as vegans, as animal activists, I think we really need to look at these at situations like this and understand what are the ideologies that are going on here and how can we dismantle them to create a world where we... There isn't a category that justifies violence. We just have to show, you know, it's normal to show respect for absolutely everyone. Mm. And so when we look at this idea that, oh, Israel is doing so much good by being so vegan friendly, we can ignore the Palestinian situation. We are simply, I would say, we're perpetuating the problem. Mm. We're doing the same thing that I think we often do in the vegan movement a lot, where this person is doing so much good for the animals that we can ignore the ways that they're racist or the ways that they've perpetuated sexual sexual assault or some uh, things like that. So I think there's those are narratives that seem to repeat inside the vegan movement a lot where there's this kind of idea that if someone or a group of people or even a city, a country, is doing good in one way, then it's right to ignore the things they're doing in another side. I think there's this label that our guide told us about, which is... um, uh, progr- um we, people who are peps so pep which is progressive except palestine mm. and i think we need to create a culture where it you can't be that like mm. Mm. it's just not accepted to because i don't think we can it shouldn't like i don't think we have the excuse not to be educated anymore and yeah 
Yeah, and I guess um, we've spoken a bit about how Palestinians view animals and or yeah, some of the dominant trends and how they might be different. But in terms of the activism um, and also linking it to the veganism, and again, Esther Alown, who we've already mentioned, is probably my primary source in this mm. topic. And one thing she raised was that at least the activists she spoke to, veganism wasn't their primary focus. So, yeah, yeah I'm wondering like what sort of animal activism was going on. You mentioned sort of helping out with like sort of companion animals or that that is in a different yeah. sense how we view it but uh, what are some things doing on um, they were doing there and was there a focus on veganism or was that not really their main priority yeah, yeah. so veganism i would say was pr- pretty secondary for them mm. and that's partly strategic so it's partly that veganism is not something that a lot of people are open to at this time mm. so part of their rationale is that they're having those conversations. They definitely are. They have like a vegan club mm. in Ramallah, which holds uh, monthly events. Yeah. And that's going really well. And they've tried a couple of times to open like vegan restaurants, but they haven't worked out. So at this it's point, part of the, like they do talk to people about veganism, but it's a little bit secondary just because people aren't ready for that conversation. Mm. One of the main thing that Powell does, which is actually how they started, is this group called uh, Youth for Change. So it's a move. Uh, program called youth for change and that aims to break the cycle of violence so what they noticed was that what was happening a lot was that there would be you know a young boy say who was beaten by a soldier and that boy would come back to his his home his refugee camp say and then he would beat a dog because you know there's this built-up frustration there's this built-up anger and there's this idea that violence is what you do um to those who are below you so he's been seen as below this Israeli soldier. He's been beaten. He goes home. He sees this dog as below him. He beats them. Then he might grow up and then he might beat his wife. So they noticed this cycle of violence where people were having a violence inflicted against them and then they would go on to inflict violence against those who they see as lesser than them. Mm. So the program Youth for Change aims to break that. So it runs workshops and like educational programs within communities working with young people primarily and helping them to understand the way that violence is inflicted against them and redirect those feelings of anger and frustration in different, more positive ways. So really the aim is to help young people go from being, you know, really angry, go from being really frustrated and go from turning into sources of violence into helping them transform that anger into other ways of resisting. So nonviolence into positively contributing to the community, into being community leaders and things like that. So that's one of the ways they're doing that. And that is kind of symbolic of the way um, Pal kind of sees human rights, animal rights and land rights really interconnected. Mm. So, yeah, did you want to talk about the Bedouin? Yeah, so they've also um, tried to work with uh, Bedouin tribes uh, who use working animals, so donkeys, um, for example. And basically, they've that's that's a situation where you know the Bedouins face quite a struggle because of um, the Israeli kind of approach to taking Palestinian land. And so, having that conversation about saying, "Oh, you know, we'd really like you to not using these working animals anymore," that's quite tough. It's obviously what. Uh, Ahmed and the Palestinian Animal League. Ahmed is the founder of the Palestinian Animal League. Um, it's what they would like. It's what they would like the conversation to be around. Um, but it's really difficult to have that conversation at the moment. So at the moment, it's more. It's more very much um, a welfare conversation and sort of trying to make conditions better for those donkeys um, at the moment. Um, 
I think for mm. Pal, there's a lot of compromise, mm. um, which would be frustrating, but also Absolutely. something that's really important to them and to most Palestinians in general is this idea of community. So rather than choosing to hold this strongly abolitionist stance and not build relationships mm. within communities, they most of the time choose to go in and have those really hard conversations inside communities and understand that they kind of have to meet people where they're at, especially because these are people living under occupation. A lot of the time they're focusing on their own survival and the survival of their children. And a lot of the time these are habits that have been ingrained in them for so long that the idea of changing them whilst they're being continually oppressed is just really hard. So what they do is they try and go in and build these relationships and they meet people where they're at and they try and make small changes which will help the the animals who are being oppressed and they also help the humans who are being oppressed. So it's a lot about community building and having those conversations and building those connections. Yeah, and people are really connecting with PAL in a significant way and just a small example of that is um, there was someone who owns some out-of-home billboard advertising in Ramallah and they have offered PAL to to be able to show a 15-second video on that billboard for a week and they said that that would play each day about 600 times. Mm. So that's a small way to show that, that people are really resonating with what PAL is doing and the reason that... Ahmed reckons that is happening is that PAL is really tapping into what the people care about and it's tapping into the mindset of the people rather than kind of going in with this, uh, you know, this this idea that, you know, we know everything, here's the solution, you're all wrong. Yeah, it's very much about building up those connections, those communities, those relationships um, rather than a really confrontational approach. Mm. And I guess just to clarify, and I'm pretty sure this is clear, but just uh, the activists themselves were vegan themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were vegan, but for pragmatic or the, because of the context they're in, it was kind of hard to sort of have that as their main yes. campaign. Yeah. I guess. Yes. Yeah. We, we better take a track. So we're going to play a song, which is all about uh, this, this occupation and the situation there. So this is Jamaica Plain, I Won't Run. <laughs>
house as we watch from the slope at the Seven Arches Hotel. Our hope dies again. We sacrifice our young men for some understandable, however misguided relief. The growing crowd will alarm you, will harm you. If the U.S. didn't arm you, you'd be running for the hills. Your paranoia kills and you're confusing Judaism. Words were better than Judaism. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You're listening to Freedom of Species, bringing you animal advocacy on the airwaves of 3CR. Uh, me and Harley are joined by Dylan Fernando, who has recently been to Palestine, as well as Harley as well. So, yeah, in the last few minutes, we're going to talk a bit about something that came up earlier and this idea of, um, I guess, yeah, some of the different ways in which uh, people sort of interact with animals or have companion animals in some sense. But in, in some countries, as you've touched on, the differences there between Palestine and Israel and maybe how things are done here, which might be similar to Israel, I guess. Um, yeah, some of the different ways that can be done. And just from my own experience as well, going to Thailand, I saw a lot of uh, dogs just roaming the streets. And yeah, it was quite interesting. And I definitely don't necessarily want to glorify and say it was clearly better than what we do here because there probably were issues like with veterinary care, for example, which might not be as good of a standard as yeah you know, as it is in Australia, for example, and you know probably more get hit by cars, etc. So I definitely could see pros and cons, but after going there, I couldn't necessarily decide that the way that they did it there was better uh, than the way or the way we do it here is better than what was done over there. And I know uh, from family in Indonesia, it's kind of the same thing, and maybe sound a little bit like in Palestine in that people sort of have a cat, but they just feed them; they don't necessarily you know, 
have or a dog like they're not in your yard all day mm. they're kind of around but that that meant that they had a lot more freedom than dogs here uh, they had they sort of were in packs they sort of had like friends rather than sort of being isolated or just spending mm. time with humans so yeah again I saw I saw pros and cons but it was kind of interesting because yeah I couldn't really work out what was really necessarily the best way to do things but yeah any thoughts on yeah the I guess the, maybe the best way or what could be a better way to do this I don't know if we could necessarily comment on what could be a better or best way, but I think it, it or is... Or any different ways that yeah. it is done, I guess, yeah. Yeah, like, I think it is important for us to sort of to question the, the narratives that we, we that we have here. Sort of, I think, I think sort of how we kind of... Um, view the future happening if we were sort of sort of to proceed with a vegan world is that we would like to have a future where we perhaps some people sort of see us living completely without other animals or some people see us living with um you know with a continued um almost still where we very much govern animals autonomy Mm -hmm. and so i think you know what we've what you talked about in thailand what we've seen in palestine is where um you've got a situation where dogs and cats are very much sort of cohabitant more so cats in palestine but they're they're very much like coexisting on the land with humans and i guess we can sort sort of start to think about okay how can that look while being um, while being a sustainable situation for everyone how can we provide proper healthcare to animals living in those situations and how can we provide shelter while allowing them that degree of autonomy that yeah allows them to kind of uh, to have friends who are other animals and kind of go wherever they like do mm-hmm. what they like to do to just sort of be dogs and cats mm-hmm. yeah I think it's a really interesting thing because often you'll have a discussion you know with someone and there's this I guess deep assumption that if I think this is often a discussion I have with other vegans where it's like if we didn't keep animals, if we didn't confine them, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with humans. And I don't think that's necessarily true in Mm. many senses. So we know that most species don't stray far from home, you know, they'll have a home and they, you know, like we hear stories about, a lot of different species traveling really long distances to go back to their home and i don't think that's necessarily because they have this deep unshakable bond with their humans although i'm not um discounting that a lot of animals do have bond with their humans i think they do but i think it's more that they have a sense of home just like we do mm-hmm. and i think one thing i remember delan and i were walking through like the streets of um ida refugee camp which is where we stayed and we were looking you know just saying hello to the street cats as we do there's lots of there's lots of them they all look very happy well fed they stay like they stay together they have lots of like they have places they hang out they have places that they sleep um they're very comfortable in that environment and we were talking about how in an idea like a nice idealized vision of the future we would love to live in a community where it was a community that happened to have humans living there that also happened to have other species living there they weren't confined by humans and they weren't owned by humans. Mm. They just happened to live in the same places at the same time. Mm. And I do think that is quite a way, way off because you would have to have things like, you know, citizenship rights, which entitle people to health care. You'd have mm. to have some element of, you know, allowing individuals to access health care, which could in, would, would probably involve some form of confinement at some point in their lives. But I think it is really something that's interesting and worth thinking about. Like, yeah. how can we coexist rather mm. than care for i guess like Mm. caring for as part of community rather than as a kind of guardianship paternalistic role 
Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I did have that dilemma a few times. I remember when I was back in Perth, I'd often see stray dogs. And after a certain time, the only place you could take to, them to was a certain, um, I think it was a like a university that had like a vet thing or whatever. And I heard afterwards or at some point that they generally just killed the, mm. the dogs there. And I was kind of like, well, in a way, like why not just let them run free? Like it's not the ideal, but like it's better than sort of putting them. And I, th- I think that idea of like we have to have them, they have to have an owner or yeah. we have to kill them is very much based on more a human notion of control and we don't want to see animals run around the street because mm. then Australia will look like these other countries that are viewed as like less than or yeah. worse than us rather than actually a genuine concern for animals in a lot of the cases more about yeah control and portraying a certain image of it like Australia or whatever Western country has been like clean and controlled and ordered and all these kind of things rather Completely. than for the animals themselves so yeah we did also an episode a while ago on pets and animal, animal liberation check that out again Esther Alound episode is well worth checking out as well uh, so yeah thanks so much for both of you for coming in and thanks for joining us as our guest today Dylan thank you for having me um, yeah it's been really interesting and I'm sure we could say a lot more and uh, definitely <laughs> even that topic of different ways of sort of related animals mm-hmm. is a big one that could be all of these could maybe be future episodes but uh, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. A reminder, tune in to our show 1 till 2 every Sunday via 855am or via 3cr.org.au and yeah, Harley and Dylan or one, yeah, do you want to announce this final song which you've chosen? Yeah, sure. So the last song we wanted to play is a song called My Blood is Palestinian, which is from a young singer from Gaza called Muhammad Asaf so yeah, it's an amazing song about Palestinian resistance. Enjoy. على ديني على أرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا فديهم أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.